So if you have Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. We are, uh, and we have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and as Jesus has begun his sermon with the Beatitudes. This is the calling card of the Christian. It is uh, certainly some, uh, I guess if you were to hand someone a definition of what is a Christian, these would be certainly things that are on the, on the card. Um, so we've come through several of them, and here we are at verse 8, where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All of the Beatitudes, they have a blessed thing and then a promise and so in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now it is clear that Jesus is deeply concerned about the condition of the heart. Uh, we see this in the other Beatitudes that, that he mentions. Uh, we see this in the, you know, coming to him meek. Uh, blessed are the meek, because that is the heart of God. We see this in blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is certainly a condition of the heart, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We see this in blessed are the poor in spirit. Certainly that is also a condition of the heart. Here we come to blessed are the pure in heart. All these things are internal things. They're not external things. These are internal things. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. You'll remember that he, he railed against the Pharisees when he, when he delivered all these woes, the seven woes to the Pharisees. He railed against them for the condition of their heart. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, they were so concerned about outward appearances and appearing to be holy and going through all these motions of cleanliness. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-righteousness. He says, you blind Pharisees, you clean the inside of the cup and the plate. That the, he said, you should clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside may also be clean. So work on the inside so that the outside can be clean. I really want to get at what it means to have a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to have a pure heart? So we, we have to really think about what that word pure means. What does it mean to be pure? Pure. If you have pure water, what does it mean to have pure water? Well, it, it means that you only have water, right? It's pure. There are no other chemicals in it. There's no other additives. It's only water. It's H2O and nothing but H2O. And I think that water is, is a great example for us because water is clear. And there are a lot of things that you can dissolve in water that don't change the look of water, but they certainly change the characteristics of water. There are a lot of things that can be hidden in the heart. They don't change the look of the person, but they certainly change the characteristics of the heart. 
When something is pure, it is what it presents itself to be. You can dissolve a whole lot of salt in water, and up to a point it will still be just as crystal clear as pure water. And you would never know that you had a glass of salt water until you took a drink of it. Something that is pure is through and through. It is what it is through and through. There is no division. There is no contamination. There are no hidden surprises. Just like with a glass of water, when you ask for a glass of water, you want water. You don't want any hidden stuff in there. You don't want any contaminants. You certainly don't want anything floating around in there, and you absolutely don't want anything dissolved in there that you don't know about. Amen. You just want a glass of water. You want it to be water through and through. And even if you want ice in the water, that's just water on top of water. <laughs> you want it to be pure. You want it to be water. There was a time when Jesus was confronted by something that wasn't what it presented itself to be. And most of you know the story in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 11, we find that Jesus and his disciples, they were on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. They were hungry. Mark 11, verse 12, Jesus came from Bethany. In verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Well, that kind of seems unfair, doesn't it? I mean, it, it wasn't the season for figs. It says it right there in, in verse 13. It wasn't time for figs. So why was Jesus so put out with the, the fig tree, even though it wasn't the right time for the fig tree to be producing fruit? It was out of season. The fig tree wasn't supposed to be producing fruit at that time. Well, you've got to know a little bit of something about Mediterranean fig trees. Apparently, when they uh, produce figs, they produce figs before they produce leaves. So they will stay in fruit all the while that they are in leaf. So if a fig tree is in leaf, a Mediterranean fig tree, if it's in leaf, it is also in fruit, or it's supposed to be. They're fig trees. So what they saw, they saw a fully mature, fully leafed out fig tree. So even though it was out of season for figs, the fact that this tree was in full leaf, it was advertising to them that it should also have had figs. Right? So this fully leafed out, fully mature fig tree, they fully expected to see figs when they got to it because that's what fig trees do. They produce figs. They are fig trees through and through. But this fig tree produced no figs. The leaves were, in fact, lies. It presented itself to be something that it was not. The fig tree, in this case, is a picture of the heart that is not pure. It's just like salty water. It looks refreshing until you take a closer examination. It looks refreshing until you get up close. It's not single. There are other things in it. It's not through 
and through. You could say it's, it's divided. The fig tree was out of season, but it presented itself as being in season. There was division. Like salt water, it's both salt and water. There's a, a division. They are two separate things trying to occupy the same space. Well, what does that look like in the heart? How does that translate to the heart? The heart is not single in deed or confession or creed. A heart that is divided is happy for people to see and believe one thing while inside you think and feel something else. An impure heart has ulterior motives and hidden agendas. Have you ever done something? You know, you've taken action, you've done something for someone, and you've purposefully allowed someone to think you did it for one reason, but you actually did it for another reason, or you hoped they believed you did it for another reason, and it's usually a more self-serving reason, that is an ulterior motive. That's a hidden agenda. That is not a pure heart. James calls it being double-minded. In James chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's really just echoing what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? This is the psalm that close, most closely echoes the, the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who gets to see God? Who's the one that gets to see God? Or as James puts it, draw near to God. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And just who is that? Who is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart? It's the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. So lifting up your soul to what is false, that's following after idols and swearing deceitfully, saying one thing out of your mouth and believing or intending another thing in your heart, that's being divided, being double-minded. So the person who is pure, the person who does not lift up his heart to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God. Such is the salvation of those who seek him, who seek the face of Jacob. And that, verse 5 and 6, that forces a second point about the essence of purity, about what it means to be pure. Biblical purity, purity of heart as Jesus meant it. Remember the, the question that was asked in verse 3 of, of Psalm 24, which is also the reward that was offered by Jesus, they shall see God. Verse 3 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And then we are told, in, uh, in, uh, we are told it's the person who has clean hands and a pure heart. Verse 5, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, then verse 6 adds something a bit more. 
It adds more context to what it means to have a pure heart. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So it's not only that we must have an undivided heart or that we must be without hidden motives and hidden agendas. See, that's not enough. Even the purest substances, the most pure substances can be toxic substances. We must be pure, but we must be pure with purpose and in our affection. We see this plainly when the psalmist said that this blessing belongs to the generation who seeks him, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. They seek his face. They have a passion for the glory of God. They have a zeal for God. They love Him. They want to enjoy Him and experience life through Him. They see the world in Him and by Him and through Him and because of Him. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord commanded just as much when He said in, in six chapter, four, chapter 6 verse 4, He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. How much of it? All of it. With all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We just read past that and we, we, don't, we don't take stock of what that means. We think all doesn't mean all. When the lawyer asked Jesus to try to trip him up about the law, he said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, It's that! Do that! Love God with your whole heart. Love Him with everything in you. Be through and through with that. There can't be any others. You cannot be divided in that. You can't divide it. Jesus went so far as to say later in his ministry, he went so far as to say that compared to him, unless you hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even your own life, you can't be his disciples. His words, not mine. God has to be the single purpose of your life. He has to be the single pursuit of your heart. I'm going to say that one more time. Because I know that it comes as a hammer on some of you. God has to be the single purpose of your life. He has to be the single purpose of your heart. And I know that just saying that makes some of you draw up inside. It makes you tense just to even suggest it. What? What do you mean? I can't have other pursuits. I can't have other desires. But I have goals. I have things that I want to do. I have a career. I have college. The God that I know wouldn't ask me to give those things up. The God that I know, the God that I worship, wants me to be happy. He wants me to enjoy life. That my God is for me. That's what the Bible says. 
And I would say to you that if that is your response, out of the broken sadness of my own heart for you, that you have not seen God, neither do you know him. His commandment is to seek him, to seek his face. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Psalm 84, God is so gracious. Psalm 84 tells us that no good thing is withheld from those who walk uprightly with God. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you desires. He will put desires in your heart that are holy and righteous so that following Him is just exactly what you want and all these things will be added to you. Let me see if I can show this to you in a different way. Turn to John, 1 John chapter 1. Excuse me, chapter, chapter, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. John is writing a general letter to the churches across Asia Minor. He's trying to teach them about sound doctrine and the fully God yet fully man nature of Jesus. He's trying to warn them about false teachers and reassure them about safety and assurance that we have in Christ because of what Jesus came to do and because of what it means to be fully a Christian, what it means to have a heart that is pure and and that fully follows after God, what it means to be one of His, to abide in Him. In chapter 1, he said that we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. I'm writing this to you. The purpose of this letter is to complete our joy. The gospel is good news. It's so wonderful to be so caught up in Christ. It's wonderful for me to share it and it's wonderful for you to hear it. It's joy to give it, and it's joy to receive it. I'm writing it so that our joy can be complete. And so, in chapter 2, verse 28, he says, And now, little children, I love that. He says, little children. He calls them little children. Can you imagine if I addressed you as little children? I think y'all would be upset with me if I did that. He does it seven times in this letter. Little children, little children, my children, my little children, he calls them. He's not talking down to them. He's not condescending to them. That's That's not his tone. He's loving them. He wants them to see that he is speaking to them from a position of loving authority, from apostolic authority. Just like when the children, little children, gathered to Jesus and he said, suffer not the little ones to come unto me. Just like when they gathered around Jesus or or when all the grandkids go to grandpa's house and they sit on his knee while he tells them stories. 
This gives us the tone of John's letter. He's trying to draw the saints in. He's trying to love on them and to to build them up and to strengthen them and to protect them. He's trying to put up protections around them. He says, be careful. I want you to watch out. Little children, be careful. So he calls them his little children. He says, little children, abide in him. This means he lived. This means to stay, rest, hope, have your being in him, in Christ. Abide in him so that when he appears, when he comes, abide in him so that when he comes, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We won't hide our face like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Welcome him and say, Here he is. Here he is. If you know that he is righteous, if you know, don't you know he is righteous? You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Fig trees produce figs, apple trees produce apples, grapevines produce grapes. In John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the gospel of John, he puts it, he, he records Jesus as saying it this way, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Amen. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing that is truly righteous. You cannot do real righteousness except that you are born of Christ, except that you abide, you live and move and have your being in Him. So when you see righteousness being produced as real fruit from a real person, you can be sure it's because He's connected with Christ. When you see someone suffering and yet they say, Yes, Lord, I will still trust you. You can be sure that is because he is connected with Christ. When you see someone like the Macedonian Christians giving with joy and rejoicing at the plundering of their property, you can be sure it is because they are connected with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, I see, 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 I love the way the King James puts it. Behold. It's such a, I just have more weight to it. Behold, what manner, what kind of love the Father has given to us. Love that was given. It was a gift that we should be called the children of God. This was a gift from God to you and me to call us his children. And look what he says next because it's so very important. And so we are. We are His children because of the gift of love that He gave to us to call us His own. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So He makes a distinction between those who know Him and those who do not. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. We don't yet see him perfectly. We see him. Oh, we see him. We wouldn't be here if we didn't see him. That's what saves us because 
He's given us grace to see him. But we don't see him perfectly. We see him, we cherish him, we savor him, but it's, it's through a glass dimly, as, as Paul said. But John continues, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. No longer looking through that glass dimly, but then face to face, because we will see him as he is as the absolute treasure, the absolute greatest treasure, the single greatest aim, the the end of all pursuits, the risen, crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. He is ruler and, and majesty, the holy one, the righteous judge, seated in radiant glory, the glory that outshines every sun, the brightest Son, and yet meek and lowly of heart, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We will behold all of that. We will behold all of that and infinitely more than all of that when we see Him face to face. But one thing, one thing gives all of that reality. One thing allows all of that to explode into reality. One thing makes all of that possible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He told Moses in the burning bush, I am that I am. There is no more explanation required. He is one, single, singular, undivided. James says that in God there is no variation or even a shadow of turning. He is what he presents himself to be through and through. Single of heart, not double-minded. In verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him, John continues, Everyone who hopes that Christ is, that He is alive, that He is coming again, and that we are His, everyone who hopes in that purifies Himself. That is to say that He is made pure. We are made pure by this hope in Christ because He is pure. He is one. He is not divided or double-minded. And in verse 4, we see John begin to make some application for us. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's a lot there. I could spend weeks on that. But we come to this passage 
because of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The single pursuit of the heart toward God. Let me just zero in on the last two verses, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And we see that kind of language throughout the passage here. Let me, let me say this. This is not meant to be a stranglehold around the Christian's neck. John is not saying you better get all your T's crossed and your I's dotted or you're out of here. He's not saying you better walk the line, buddy, because no one who practices sinning is born of God. Look at what he says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. See, John is calling our affections toward Christ. To what it means to be born of Christ and to have a single heart for him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. We see this repeated throughout. Makes a practice, keeps on sinning, practices lawlessness. And that is positioned against practicing righteousness. If you look back up in verse 7, you'll see that. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And even in verse 10, we see that positioned against the, the one who practices sinning. We know that this person is not born of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness So what does all that mean? Ask yourself this question. I mean, I, again, like I said, I could spend weeks breaking this apart. I don't, just, time does not allow me. So, to try to really boil it down, ask yourself this question. Are you at war with sin in your life? Or are you cozy with it? Do you make effort to kill it, or do you snuggle up with it like a warm blanket? Amen. See, this is how imperfect people practice righteousness and are counted righteous as he is righteous because we make war with sin in our lives. It's still there because he is perfect, we are not. It's still there. I wrestle with it. I wrestle with it daily. But the pursuit of my heart is singular. I follow Christ. Amen. This is how I know I follow him, because I wrestle Amen. with sin. Heard a wonderful illustration by T.D. Jakes one time um, about the difference between lambs and pigs. When a lamb gets in the mud, it, it cries. And it bays, it's still dirty, but it cries, get this mud off me. But a pig, when it gets in the mud, it just wallows. It's comfortable. Are you at war with the sin? I do not make a practice of sinning. Does sin still happen? 
Do I still have moments where my anger flares up? Do I still have moments of pride or of envy where I'm not very self-controlled? The single pursuit of my heart is Christ. I don't make a practice of it. It pains me. I know it happens and I seek forgiveness instantly once I realize it, of course. Once he convicts me, and that usually happens pretty quickly and I realize, oh God, please forgive me. Now some have taken this to the far, far liberalism and hyper grace, forgiveness only gospel. And they say, see, if you are in Christ, you can't sin. Nothing you do is sin because all is forgiven. And I see that all over the place. Well, lest you go that route, let me put it to you this way. And this is a biblical analogy, I think, because Christ looks at his church in this way. I am married. Therefore, nothing I do is considered cheating. Well, that doesn't set well, does it? But that's exactly the same argument for those folks that say, you are forgiven, therefore nothing you do is sin. You are saved, therefore nothing you do is sin. And believe me, that argument is out there and it is being preached far and wide. And this text is being used to preach it. And that's not what John is saying. He's not trying to coddle sin. He wants you to have a pure heart that chases God. And that's why he says, if you are in Christ, you, you, you can't practice sin because your heart is after him. Amen. Amen. Your heart is after him. Let me continue that. I'm married, therefore, nothing I do is considered cheating. My wife, she wears my ring. She even wears my name. She carries my name. Therefore, nothing she does is unfaithful to our marriage. Well, that doesn't fly either, does it? I think we can all agree that is absolutely wrong. Though, you know, that uh, that may be wrong, but there are situations where I can wrong her and there are situations where she can wrong me and our marriage can still be secure, right? Still maintain faithfulness and, and a strong relationship, strong marriage. She can be short with me or inconsiderate or rude or dismissive from time to time and I'm not accusing her, I'm just using this as an example. This is an example but that's not her whole heart toward me. That's not how she feels about me through and through. Sometimes life happens. Sometimes circumstances and situations happen. And she forgets that I love her tremendously and that I only want what's good for her. And, you know, tempers flare. Has she been unfaithful with me just because she's rude to me or snaps at me one time? 
Is her heart impure toward me? Will I say to her, be gone from me? You are not of me anymore? No, because her affections are for me as her husband and only for me as her husband. That's an undivided heart. I would not say that if she wanted to have me as her husband and also have a boyfriend. That's a divided heart. But yet, is that not what we do toward God? God, I love you. I want all of your benefits. But I also want this over here. I love you. I want all of your benefits. But I have no desire to spend any time with you. I want to flirt with this other thing. I want to flirt with immorality. I want to flirt with gossip and, and impurity and all the other things that come into our lives that separate us from God. So where is your heart toward God this morning? Is he your pursuit? Is he your desire? Is he the single pursuit of your heart and the single desire of your heart? I mean, seriously, I'm asking you to seriously consider the desires of your life, all the goals of your life. They all, all the must-haves of your life. Where do they come from? Where are they rooted? All your goals, all your must-haves. I used to have a very strong desire to live in a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, in the woods, away from people, that's only accessible by helicopter. I wanted to withdraw from the world because people are just so much like people. And I am, I'm an introvert. And I always ask the Lord, are you sure that you have me where you want me? And then I realized that that desire did not come from the pursuit of God. I realized that was inconsistent with the Great Commission. I could not follow that desire to be separated from people and follow God. And so I let it go. I didn't want it dividing my heart. If, if saying that God has to be the single purpose of your life, that he has to be the single pursuit of your heart makes you wince up and makes you clench and makes, makes you think, well, I don't, I don't know that that's, that's right. I don't, I don't think that's right. God doesn't want that for me. This is a clear warning sign from the Apostle John that you have not seen him and you do not know him. But I want to, I want to give you hope, though. John, again, he isn't trying to put his thumb on anyone. He isn't trying to put his hands around your neck and choke you. He is lovingly trying to gather you in. In in chapter 1, verse 9, he said, If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If your heart is divided in that this morning... If you're too cozy with your sin or you can't quite take hold of the idea of one pursuit in God alone, Jesus comes to tell us through his word that he is faithful and just to forgive. If you will reach out and confess, Lord, I believe, 
Help me in my unbelief. He will cleanse you and he will make you pure and give you that pure heart. Without it, you can't see God. There are things this morning that some of us need to let go of because they are pursuits and desires that aren't godly. They're getting in his way. He wants your whole heart. All of it. I don't know why we get so confused about that. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with all your heart. My prayer for us this morning is that we latch on to that, that we cling to that, that we love it. It is a glorious truth. And when we seek Him first, when we delight ourselves in Him, oh, the things He will give us. No good thing does He withhold from those who love Him. Let me pray for you. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You are good and glorious, and we love you, and we thank you, and I pray that the desire of our heart be turned wholly to you, that we can, like the Apostle Paul, say, I count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of Christ. Father, would you come and bless us with that? Would you give us that grace? That truly is a miracle. That truly is greater. That is greater. Lord, we love you. We thank you once again for our moms. I pray that they all have a blessed day. Send us out into this world, Lord, ready to to do your will. Have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.